Hello and welcome back to the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm James Lloyd and today I'm speaking with mindfulness teacher John Cummings. We spoke about John's journey to mindfulness, what it was about mindfulness that led him to want to teach it, how it can help you, the risks of the overprescription of mindfulness and some recommendations from John for those wanting to learn more about it. So settle back, enjoy and don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to another episode of the Therapy Explained podcast. I'm your host, James Lloyd, and this week I'm joined by John Cummins, a mindful-based psychotherapist. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, James. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, John. If we could start off, would you mind telling me a little bit about your background? Uh, my background um, is, uh, my first training is as a mental health nurse. That's my first under, undergraduate training. Um, and from there, I went on to do some training in cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. Um, and I did that in Trinity College in Dublin. Um, and that was really interesting for me because I was, I was at a point where, you know, I had a certain amount of skills from my mental health nursing training, but I realized I needed a little bit more. And I was really interested in trying to learn some form of psychotherapy that would be useful to the clients that I was working with. And CBT at the time really kind of made sense um, to me. Um, so from there, I kind of developed into that. Then, you know, I kind of became really interested, um, co- completed my postgraduate diploma. Um, and soon after, um, took an opportunity to begin practicing um, that more um, in a community mental health team. Um, so I did that for a number of years and along the way, I became interested in mindfulness um, and in mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, it kind of was something that I was curious about um, and I took a course in it. Um, and I took my first course there and that was Bangor University. And that was really interesting to me um, because I'd, I'd been looking for something myself um, over the years to work with stress um that i would have experienced um and this was this was a different way of working with it um that appealed to me so i took that course and that really kind of um opened my eyes to kind of the um possibility for you know cbt and mindfulness to be combined um and also that it could be a very good stress reduction tool for healthcare professionals um so from there i began to teach that in the mental health service I was working in, um, to the patients, the clients, first of all. And then I uh, moved to training um, as a teacher in that area, and I moved to delivering courses to healthcare professionals. Um, so along the way, I've kind of, um, I guess I've kind of dipped my toe into compassion-focused therapy uh, as a modality that I enjoy using um, more and more. Um, and... Um, I'm, I'm aware of, of the other therapies, acceptance and commitment therapy and DBT, but I, I don't use those as much. Um, so CBT, mindfulness and CFT are kind of my, my areas, um, or my wheelhouse as, as they would say. So today we're going to focus mainly on mindfulness and, you know, you've really thrown yourself into that. You've gained a lot of experience to the point where now you're teaching others, um, mindfulness. Is it teaching others or you're training people in mindfulness? it's it's a teaching is really um you know so um yeah and that's a good question actually james um but you know mbsr is also considered a a good training as well you know um so i 
I would consider teaching um, an eight-week course to be kind of very much, you know, tutoring, teaching, and it's kind of a classroom environment. Um, but also, um, I've um, been an assistant teacher in training um, others to become MBSR teachers. Um, so that's uh, that's also been very interesting for me as well. So I, um, I'm not doing that at the moment, but I have done uh, quite a bit of it as well in the past. So you've really worked yourself up that hierarchy of experience and uh, aptitude. I'm just wondering what it was that drew you to mindfulness at the very start, you know, because there are so many things that you can come across that you've mentioned, ACT, Compassion Focus Therapy, DBT. Was there anything about mindfulness that um, not only did it catch your eye at the time, but, you know, you've really gone all in? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I kind of found it the most useful thing for me, you know, it was the, it was the thing that really worked. Um, you know, um, I had, you know, I do the usual, you know, good sleep routine, you know, keep, you know, try and keep a good diet, try and limit your alcohol, you know, exercise well. Um, and those things are really useful, but I kind of found the addition of, of mindfulness to be kind of just, just provided that opportunity to kind of really connect to the body, to the body and um, have more kind of spaciousness in, in my mind. But if I was to really kind of link back to when I would have been interested from a young age was probably I kind of always, I was always curious about Buddhism um, and I and I don't know if you remember the movie The Karate Kid uh, yeah a little bit before my time yeah. I must say but yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, well it's been on TV a lot recently and so I, I would have remembered watching that when I was when I was young and kind of going there's something about what that you know what they're doing about what they're doing here um, you know there's something about um, being able to kind of kind of control your own mind or have the discipline to be able to direct your mind or put your attention and and, and build your concentration and I never had an opportunity um, you know I would have dabbled a little bit in kind of um, karate when I was a kid and, you know, a bit of kickboxing and things like that. But I think it was because I was drawn to this idea that there was other ways to, um, to control your mind, to manage your mind and maybe even manage your emotions as well. Um, so, yeah, that's probably where I was first curious, but I never got an opportunity. Um, you, know, there, you know, I couldn't go to a local center or there was nobody trying to, um, to teach teach this to to kids or to teenagers um so yeah that that was probably my first kind of inclination that there was something about this and i've always had a curiosity as uh, as well about the japanese culture i've always been drawn to you know the kind of that the asian cultures as well so i mean we've kind of touched upon it uh, on a superficial level but what is mindfulness yeah um there's so many ways of of describing it you know um, and so many different traditions um so i think for the purpose of this I, i'm kind of gonna keep to mindfulness-based stress reduction um as a way of introducing what mindfulness is um because it's a it's a good um there's a good structure to it and it, and it makes sense and it it makes sense to anybody who's like you know, experiencing stress really um which all of us have experienced to some degree um, in our lives or more so in the last 18 months. Um, but if I was to give the kind of working definition of it, it is that it's paying attention um, on purpose in the present moment with a non-judgmental attitude. And it's kind of a big, big working definition. And to break that down, um, you know, paying attention, you know, at the moment where we're paying attention to each other and what we're saying, you know, 
So we pay attention to somebody and we, we can direct our attention. We can put our attention in our bodies. We can put our attention externally to somebody else. We can listen. Um, we can use our senses to pay attention. Um, and we do it on purpose then, you know. So there's two things that are always here, our body and our breath. They're always available to us. Um, and they're like little portals and access points into being present. Um, and with a non-judgmental attitude, um, I guess what that means really is everyone has a mind that wanders and everybody will become distracted um, and we will go into what's known as automatic pilot so the easiest way to describe that is you know you put your keys in the fridge you know or you forget to turn off that you were supposed to take when you're driving or you put something down and two seconds later you're like where did i put it but you know you left the two room in in a room upstairs when you thought you left it in a room downstairs and that's that's kind of the first sign of becoming um our mind becoming over busy um moving into overwhelm uh, maybe the first sign of stress um so it's working with being non-judgmental about how the mind is because often we can criticize ourselves for that and be hard on ourselves because for even becoming distracted or um overwhelmed and as we know then that kind of that can that can become quite acute sometimes or can become quite chronic um in terms of the stress they experience in our lives so that's probably a long answer to what is mindfulness but that's that's essentially kind of i suppose the beginning in explaining it really so it's kind of like being an observer but in a non-judgmental manner just kind of observing what comes up what's yeah what's noticing. Here now. yeah so noticing and and engaging your senses in that as well. So it's quite experiential, I guess. Yeah, so it's a type of thing that until you do it, you probably won't get a full grasp of what it is. Yeah, yeah, so it's kind of, yeah. But then at the same time, everybody kind of almost intuitively knows what it's like to, you know, be distracted, you know, and then wake up again and go, where was I? You know, what happened there? My mind was, I was, I was, I was in another place, you know. I wonder if you have any examples of where people might be being mindful without even realizing it, say someone who's never heard of this term before. Um, so they can relate to it. So maybe they will have that experience or have, have had that experience. Yeah, like that's it. Like everybody's had the experience of you know being present, you know, and, and, and many people have that quality of being present as well, you know. Um, so an example of when it might happen is when we're in a state of flow. Um, um, a flow state where you, you're kind of, you're quite, you're quite engaged, you're quite, um, you know, stimulated by something that you maybe perhaps enjoy um and um and that could be anything you know kind of it could be even a memory from childhood as well where you were quite present to something that was happening at a certain time and it was quite you know a, an experience that stands out usually in nature this can happen you know you're just you're in nature your mind slows down you if you, you become a bit quieter in yourself and you're like oh you know this feels good. The, the sound of the trees helps to helps to kind of slow your mind down a bit. Your mind becomes kind of suited by that. And then we're at the beach, you know, we've got good weather at the moment and people know us, yeah, you know, kind of, um, there's times where, you know, if I'm in the water swimming, I don't have much else going on in my brain that's distracting me. I'm really kind of aware of the, the sensations and the feelings that are there at that time. Um, other examples will be extreme, um, extreme kind of activities you know so driving a motorbike to a you know extreme level of speed where you're just completely present in that experience and you get a you get an adrenaline rush off it or climbing a mountain um 
and there's so many um cycling a bike you know you go you cycle during a curry and it's pretty tough and you all you can think of is just one pedal after the next you know your mind isn't really able to go worrying now it does that's the thing your mind will kick in and start telling you oh god you shouldn't have done this you know um or you know climbing up the mountain your mind might start telling you that you know you shouldn't you you aren't fit enough or you aren't able for this but there usually is a point or a period where that just begins to slow down a bit more and more and the experience of presence and uh comes in and you know, an experience of kind of calmness comes in as well you know and so i wonder when you, you know you mentioned let's say people doing extreme sports i mean part of it is probably the adrenaline rush but i wonder how much of it is that being able to be in the moment and you know as you say not be thinking about the past or the future i'd say a lot of it actually i'd say a lot of it is that um because it's a nice feeling and it's a nice it's actually kind of a quite um a nice feeling of being calm you know so some people can really actually access that state when you know they're a base jumper you know they're jumping off a roof and at that moment they're like you know i completely still when this is happening you know in my mind and that feels pretty good the thing is it's probably better to be able to access this in ways that aren't as extreme because then you just keep following the the you keep following the, the hit really um and that can become a bit dangerous or you kind of you begin to injure your body because you're pushing it too hard or you you, you begin to maybe uh, you know have an accident or have close calls because you kind of rush into it too much and you, you know you, you kind of you do it too quickly or whatever it might be so it has that that can that can have its drawbacks i guess as well so you mentioned for you it works and is that how it works by helping us access that state yeah um yeah for me it was i kind of i suppose the easiest way i could i could um i could describe it as is kind of just feeling more spacious in my mind and feeling like i could respond more to the things that were coming my way um in terms of stressors in my life so i kind of found myself being quite centered and calm um and then not being not being stressed by the things that might normally kind of push my buttons um, and noticing that as well you know or even just note or slowing down enough to notice okay that's something that that pushes my button and i don't have to react to that so that's the, the spacious spacious of the mind is probably the easiest way i can describe it um and again many people have that feeling in certain parts or in time you know at certain times in their life as well everybody has it and um and i suppose i may you know more able to kind of bring yourself back into equilibrium so it's not that i don't react you know but it's more there's the recognition and the noticing and the presence of mind to be able to say okay let's pause here for a moment take a few breaths regulate the nervous system and come back and and maybe respond differently to whatever it might be that's um creating the stress of the stress or at that time any other benefits that people might anticipate or expect to experience from practicing mindfulness creativity usually is something that's gonna be a surprise there's usually surprising kind of side effects or benefits that people don't really notice it just kind of starts to happen if that makes sense and creativity is one of them so you can just like you can just find a new sense of creativity that's kind of actually again always been there but you mightn't have taken the time to to indulge because you might feel like you don't you know you're too busy so for me it might just be that i kind of have enough kind of um space in my week and my day to be able to try new recipes you know for cooking 
you know, which would be a kind of creative, kind of energizing task. Um, but also, um, you know, often what can happen is, you know, kind of what's happened for me is creative things like writing a storybook or writing a poem can just kind of come up, you know, kind of automatically without you really having to, um, to think too hard about it. Um, so kind of that, yeah, that to me I see as a benefit and, um, and also I guess what can kind of come up or naturally arise as well, maybe moving towards a place where you kind of, um, recognize how you want to live your life, you know, um, and the values that you, that you have for yourself that can kind of naturally arise as well without having to, you know, sit down and think, you know, I want to be a better person. Um, but it can naturally just come out of the practice, I guess, as well, you know. That's really interesting, those types of manifestations. So being creative and having more clarity in what you want to get out of life. What's your take on that, John? It's interesting that you used the word clarity because I didn't use that word. <laughs> so I'm wondering where that came from for you. Um, well, I think you kind of mentioned how uh, generic people may be more aware of their values in life. Um, so I guess maybe that's what I was, uh, my interpretation. Yeah, 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 sure, yeah. And I also find it interesting kind of what kind of comes back in the in conversations I have with somebody about this, you know. Um, but that kind of is really accurate. It's, I think that, and that's probably a good word to use, actually. Um, clarity. You know, just kind of just, you know, I was using the word spaciousness and you and, and you said clarity. I think clarity is probably more easily understood by people, actually. Um, just more clearness of mind. Um, and that just reminds me of, um, you know, often I, I when I have a class, I bring a snow globe, you know, and you shake the snow globe and it's, you know, all this like busyness of mind. And really, when you begin to practice, all those things settle down and you just have more clarity about but what you want to what you want to have for dinner, you know, or, or what you want to do at the weekend, you know, uh, and it's as simple as that. Um, but it's powerful because, you know, people in the groups that I run would say, you know, I actually sat down with my kids and we watched a movie last weekend, you know, and we don't normally do that. But I just kind of said, we're always on the go. Let's let's just stop. Let's sit down. And it's really powerful because, you know, I've often heard, you know, my 12 year old actually wants to hang out with me now. You know, um, and that's clarity, you know. It's interesting. I wonder how much of it could be related to, I quite like, I'm quite interested by the idea of parts work, that we've got different parts of different sub-personalities. And I wonder when we are, when we're all go or we're, when we're very stressed, if like that's one part that is, uh, maybe has too much of a say in things. And if we can be mindful, we can maybe get, get that part to have a bit of a step back and there's more space for other parts to come to the fore, like the creative part or the part that puts um, more value in spending time with our kids. Um, what do you think, uh, John? Could that be potentially what's happening? I, I, I yeah, I, I think um, I, I, I'm not aware of parents' work, but I get the concept and I think I think there is something to it um, because I think there is something to, you know, you know, even if we use, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, you know, um, or there's um, Glasser's choice theory, you know, uh, we need a balance. We need to feel in control of our lives. You know, we need to feel that we have some degree of fun in our lives. And often when people come, they're like, oh, I'm not having fun anymore. You know, this isn't fun. My, my life is, my life is just busy. And then that leads to a leads to a kind of a loss of control, you know? So the part of you that wants to be in control doesn't feel it. Um, and, um, the part of you that would like more fun feels it can't access it, you know? 
So it is dominated more by, you know, food, <laughs> you know, bills, you know, uh, keep everyone clothed and a roof over your head. And there isn't much uh, opportunity to, to move up the hierarchy to, to get to that point that everybody can access, which is just to feel some degree of self-actualization, you know? What's come to mind for me, just kind of thinking about how, um, who it might be most beneficial for, I wonder, would it be maybe people who are, what comes to mind is kind of like maybe with a traumatized past or where their nervous system, they might find it hard to regulate it for whatever reason. I wonder if they, if people with that kind of uh, background or with those current symptoms or those current experiences, if they would find it even more useful than maybe your average person. Yeah, um, yeah, that's 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 a great point and a great question. Um, so trauma sensitive mindfulness is, is an area as well um, that um, is becoming more recognized because, you know, we can see with all the world movements and things that are happening around the world, you know, trauma is, um, is you know, it's kind of experienced by many, you know, not that everybody who experiences trauma is traumatized, but certainly um, mindfulness can support that. Um, I can support uh, people in their recovery, um, but it does need to be kind of modulated, you know, or pendulated a bit as well. So it can be a really good idea, but in the wrong circumstances, it could be a, a bad idea. Um, so, um, so David Trelevin is the author of Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, and that he, it's it's his work I would usually move towards um, when kind of when. Uh, supporting a client or a participant in a group to kind of pendulate the amount of practice that they might integrate into their lives and just thinking there as you say um uh, i was thinking about how dbt it's one of the core tenets of dbt uh, mindfulness component so and generally dbt is used for people with traumatic histories um so yeah it clearly has has a place for it but you also kind of mentioned in the wrong hands um maybe it can be detrimental and does that suggest that it has risks? Yeah, yeah, it has risks. Um, yeah, there are risks that, you know, um, when you're practicing, your mind becomes a bit more still, you know. Um, you, you, you stop, you know, kind of maybe you come out of maybe a, a mode that you've, you've lived in for a long time, like fight or flight, you know, freeze even, you know, particularly freeze um phone you know whichever one um and you know the body because we're connecting to the body you know there's so many books written on the body knows the score the body keeps the score keeps the score the body never forgets you know um in life as you start paying more attention to the body and then you know an old memory can come up or something in the body can arise you know um and um there's still a bit more debate on whether sometimes that's that can be trauma um Sometimes it can be a kind of a spiritual experience as well. But what they know is that sometimes when something comes up in the body, people kind of maybe orient towards that. And then it kind of becomes, um, it can feel like it's out of, feels like it's a little out of control. Um, and the, the invitation it would be to orient away from that. But the window of tolerance work from Dan Seagal would be the kind of the model that would be used there to, kind of, you know, check if you're inside or outside your window in terms of fight, flight or freeze. Um, so that those things would those things would be important and adapt the practice to suit the person and and to um, take into context of their experience as well. So 
it could be anything, you know, somebody might say, you know, a memory from when I was in school, an unpleasant memory from school might have came into my head when I was, into my mind when I was practicing, or um, a memory from my childhood came in, you know, that was unpleasant, you know, that can come up, okay, it's important not to ignore that, but to hold that with the person and help them to contain it, um, and sometimes to understand it. So I, I suppose maybe part reason why that person mightn't be my, being mindful is because to sit with that, those thoughts can be so distressing that this is their way of coping by kind of staying busy um, maybe self-medicating, you know, staying away from those thoughts. And so there may be some risk if they're not prepared to, they, they don't know what to expect and how much, how dysregulating that can be. And that's where the window tolerance comes in. So approaching material so that it's not too overwhelming. Yeah, exactly. And even, you know, I remember, um, I remember one of the early participants and I, and I, I guess I began to recognize that early because I was working with a, a group of participants who were in a you know, secondary care mental health service and in a, in a, an area of the, the city that would have been more deprived and where people would experience uh, more mental illness. And I always remember one person telling me, you know, what you're asking me to do with this practice here is with and and become and this was even just in becoming aware of anxiety you're it's like you're asking me to run into a burning house you know and what's always amazing is i find that the person's wisdom actually usually comes up you know in that practice so there is a you know we use the body to support the mind but then actually what naturally arises is the person's wisdom so the person that person told me you know you know you're asking me to run into a burning house well we're not going to do that you know but you might stand outside and look at the house, you know, instead of running into it, you know, and that can kind of become a kind of a very collaborative, um, kind of wise approach then when it's done in that kind of way. And that's uh, really insightful, uh, John, and it makes me think about the kind of generic advice that's dished out. Um, I think during the pandemic, the Irish government were kind of talking about, you know, go for a walk, um, practice gratitude, practice mindfulness. And, you know, I work with a lot of people who, to said, I've tried all these things and they don't necessarily work for me. And so it shows how, you know, culturally we really don't understand how deep and how difficult these problems can be and also how dangerous they are to just try to treat them. Although I think all those things certainly have a place and are part of a way of treating it. But yeah, things are a lot more complex than that and you want to be very careful uh, at the advice you might give for very serious problems. Yeah, that's true, you know, kind of... You know, and sometimes I think like coming back to, you know, DBT, you know, sometimes unfortunately you can inadvertently invalidate somebody's experience, you know, um, because validation is important, you know, so someone might be like, I'm, you know, I'm at home in the pandemic, I've got, you know, a couple of young kids, both of us are working from home and I'm told to go out for a walk and, you know, be grateful and, you know, be mindful, you know, I barely have time to, I'm working till 2am, I don't have time for anything else, I need to get up again at 7 and, you know rush into the next part of the day um so i think that's that can be the the issue that comes up for many just on the thoughts of you know the i guess the popularity of mindfulness i think in ireland a gp would probably either prescribe you antidepressants or recommend the headspace app and um, that is usually the kind of limit of what they can offer unfortunately I'm wondering what your thoughts on how commercialized it's become if that's fair to say yeah, I think um, I think anything that becomes popular runs at risk, um, and yeah, and that's it. Like there's, there's there is a commercial aspect. There's a you know there's politics to it now as well. You know because you know you've got you've got apps 
um, that are being funded, you know, and being developed um, and are being recommended kind of for everybody, you know. Um, and I guess the thing that I, so I don't recommend a lot of apps actually, which is interesting. Um, but if I am really asked to, I would say, okay, well, let's see what kind of research there is behind that specific app that's being used. Um, and that's what's important, I think, you know, um, because it, it kind of isn't mindfulness for all or mindfulness for everybody. I'd be interested to learn a bit more about that, John, because this is part of my ignorance when it comes to mindfulness. But, you know, I thought like something like an Headspace app would be perfectly, you know, good to just help you practice, help you practice mindfulness. What what do you think are the risks with just recommending any kind of app? Yeah, um, I guess it's, you know, like apps can be really good, you know, for lots of people as well. So it's not just, you know, it's, it's a black and white thing. Um, but I guess it runs the risk of it being kind of, oh, here's an antidepressant or here's Headspace, you know, that's what we can do for you. And also, you know, kind of in terms of the research on life, it's been indicated as being useful for stress. Um, it's, it's been indicated as being useful for the prevention of relapse in depression. Um, and it's also in the area of self-compassion. It's been in, introduced there as well, or it's been, it's been recommended. Um, but, um, but if you're currently depressed, we'll say, you know, or highly stressed, it mightn't be the right time for that, you know. Um, it's about judging that. So if you're experiencing depression, you need a treatment for depression, you know. Um, if you're really stressed at the moment, you, you do need some support for that, but it might not be mindfulness. It might be more practical things like, you know, kind of let's sit down and look at all my stressors and see what kind of management plan I, I could begin. And then mindfulness can become part of that. So I think the, the risk is that it mindfulness becomes the treatment, you know, that's, that's given or, or recommended when it might actually be something else. And that can become part of the treatment or become become part of the treatment process at the right time. So I think it's judging the right time. And I think, I think generally the, the issue as well, the risk is that I, I don't think there's a problem with mindfulness. I think just that a lot of teachers aren't trained very well or supervised. Um, and, you know, even saying that probably sounds judgmental, but I think they're just probably, because it's so new, the field is so new, um, there probably just needs to be more um, supervision given, a lot more supervision, maybe a bit more mentoring to people. Um, because, you know, you don't have to be a mental health professional to teach it. You can work in a different area and you can teach it very well, but you probably do need to know what to do if somebody comes in and they're like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm really depressed and I'm coming to the mindfulness course, you know, or, you know, during that practice, I practice, I experienced a memory that was, I hadn't taught a few years, you know, um, and again, it can invalidate a person's experience because you're like, I'm told to go and take the antidepressant or, or, or use the mindfulness or to use the, the whatever the act of it that's been recommended. That can be invalidating. That's kind of like, have you, got not, have you not got anything else, you know? Mm, which is a real risk because I suppose we're at a turning point where a lot more people are seeking help for therapy. And if you go, if you seek help and then the person that is offering help doesn't seem to necessarily know what they're talking about or they don't seem to be able to offer much more than maybe you've tried already, then you know that could really put you off doing that again. But I guess it, what, what the risk to mindfulness then is that it be kind of becomes another kind of do this and, you know, like we'd say in the healthcare context, you know, you know, try mindfulness and, and you'll be a better worker, you know, or in a corporate context, you know, do some mindfulness and you'll be more resilient where, whereas that company or the healthcare system might need actually more systems change. 
Um, and what I would say there is that mindfulness isn't going to change the system, but it might leave you with enough energy to begin to try and enact some sort of action or change or become more engaged in social change. You know, if someone wanted to work with a practitioner who offered mindfulness, how would they know whether that person was duly accredited? What might they look out for? And what might they ask? Yeah. Um, so the where I where I trained, and, and it's the is the training that I, it's the only training I know really. Um, and where I was an assistant teacher um, was at the Centre for Mindfulness in the University of Massachusetts. So I know that training um, pathway, and that training is going to be uh, of a good quality and a, and a good standard. Um, and um, so that's usually, and that's where MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction, began. Um, and it was also it was also a place where you know the roots of MBCT and its development, mindfulness based cognitive therapy, developed as well. Um, so yeah, I know that you know if you're trained in that school, you know you will be trained to a good standards. But I can't say that you'll be a well equipped mindfulness teacher either. You know. So it's a bit, I guess it's a bit like CBT, isn't it? You know, if you go to Trinity College or you go to one of the other colleges in Cork or in UCC or wherever, you know, we can say you're trained to a certain standard, but there's quite, um, there's quite a pathway of development after that, isn't there? With supervision, with, you know, submitting your recordings and, you know, being kind of held to a standard. And I think I'd be, I'd be asking actually, what kind of supervision does the person have once they're qualified? Who are they learning from? What kind of supports do they have around them? What kind of, you know, you don't have to be, in the case of mindfulness, you don't have to be a mental health professional, but do you have access to somebody who is in case you need them? So I'd, I'd be, I'd be, there are probably questions that I'd ask from, that I can ask from my point of view, but the average person uh, might not know to ask these things or, you know, they might feel that they're crossing a boundary, but I would really be, be um, checking to see, okay, who have you trained with? Who has been your mentor? Who has been your supervisor? And what are you doing um, to kind of ensure you're you're maintaining your own standards um, in terms of CPD, etc. So there isn't necessarily a statutory body like the Irish Council of Psychotherapy. It's very much you'd be just seeing um, who, who they're, where they've trained, if they have supervision. Yeah, there is, there is a, a Mindfulness Teachers Association of Ireland, actually, which I'm joined and I'm a member of. So there, that's a place you can say, right, you know, Everybody who's joined the MTAI has completed a training that meets the minimum standards to be able to teach mindfulness-based programs. So that would be a good place to start. Yeah. And your own your own speciality in mindfulness being mindfulness-based stress reduction. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So mindfulness-based stress reduction um, is um, it's about four, over forty years old now. It was developed in nineteen seventy nine um, by Professor John Kabat-Zinn, um, and he took kind of mindfulness as as he knew it and learned it in in the nineteen sixties um, in in the USA, um, and he developed the MBSR program by bringing mindfulness and um, stress psychology. Um, together to form this mindfulness-based program, um, and that was new. That was very innovative and interesting um, at the time because it was very much kind of about the mind-body connection, um, which was you know which wasn't really kind of what was being prescribed in in healthcare um, around the world um, at that time. Um, so the interesting kind of thing about it is you know the 
usually we're, when we're treated for illness, we're treated for the physical symptoms, you know, and there isn't really a kind of a, a mind-body approach given. So this was interesting. And the uh, the research then was interesting as well because it started working. The program was used with patients who experienced chronic pain, um, chronic and ongoing pain that was getting, that, where they were receiving no relief, you know. Um, and at the time in the University of Massachusetts in the medical school there where um, this program began, um, two thirds of the patients coming into the clinic, um, in the chronic pain clinic, were getting no relief from their pain. So they said, okay, let's take this cohort of patients and, and deliver the program at them and see how it goes. Um, and they researched that. I think that's what's kind of been the good thing about bringing MIFAS and MBSR and other MB, MBs into, into societies that there's a research basis for them, you know, a bit like CBT as well, you know. Um, and I suppose in a way that wasn't too far after back in the 60s, you know, this is just 1979. Um, so, and I guess, and it's true in, in healthcare as well, you know, that a lot of therapies don't work or there's a lot of re relapse in, you know, even if they do work. Um, so that program um, was kind of groundbreaking because those clients who got no relief from their pain, um, at the end of their eight week program, they, um, their relationship to their pain was different. How they perceived their pain was different and how they responded and reacted to the pain they were experiencing in their lives changed so that they could they, they were then able to have a better quality of living despite being in the pain they were in um so the eight-week program begins with um recognizing automatic pilot all those times where your mind is overthinking you're busy and a lot of people these days will come to the program dry run because they experience burnout you know and they're they're quite stressed and they're maybe in recovery from burnout um but their bodies are still really tight they're still really um experiencing maybe migraines headaches um pain even um some people might even have epilepsy um which um or some people might be experiencing you know um just feeling overwhelmed or feeling anxious so at the beginning of the program you know, when we get the group together, we kind of identify this um, and then integrate mindfulness practices. One of them is the body scan practice, which is kind of mindfulness of the body. And when you pay attention to your body, you didn't realize, oh my God, I've got all this scattered up tension and stress all over me. And I, I didn't even realize it was there to the degree that it is. Um, and then we, we, in week two of the program, we move into, you know, slowing down in all aspects of your life. Um, which is eating um, and noticing, just, you know, wake up and, you know, smell the coffee as they, as they say, they say in the state or smell the roses or whatever it is, you know, just slowing down. What are you noticing in your day-to-day -day life? What are the pleasant things? You know, what are the little moments, those little tiny moments that are kind of pleasant to you? And can you take them in? Can you really feel them in your body, you know, and take them in? That's usually around week two. Um, and perception is in it as well, you know, kind of like, you know, and perception is in CBT, you know, how you see things determines how you, how you react or respond to them. Um, so perception is kind of woven in there, you know, how are you seeing that, you know, when that happens, how, how do you view it, you know, um, and percent, you know, kind of, they say that kind of, you know, the Buddha was the earliest cognitive behavioral therapist. It was all about how are you seeing things and how that impacting on you. Um, and then we see through the program coming into week three and four, the changing nature of things, because we also, while we have pleasant events, 
we'll have quite unpleasant things happen in our lives and nobody has a problem identifying those you know but we we have ways of coping with them and it's some of those ways of coping as you mentioned earlier even with trauma you know there can be a lot of wisdom to them because at one point in our lives in our lives that might have actually been the thing we did to keep her to keep ourselves together you know but now it's not serving us as well you know and we want to kind of let that one go so in that in that in coming into week three and four we really then begin to look at the stress psychology the different habits and things we engage in when we experience acute and chronic stress and that's where stress psychology hans lasser's work from the 1930s comes in um and that's kind of that's quite quite eye-opening actually um for many you know because you really get to see what are all those internal stressors that are impinging on me are my stressors acute or chronic and then how am I reacting? How am I responding? What am I doing? And that comes from stopping, slowing down, being present, just kind of continued um, slowing and kind of, um, and, and it's slow, 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 you know, really go slow. Um, and in week seven, that's week five and six, and coming into week seven, we have communication, so mindful communication. So communication, you know, probably for most of us can cause us the most pain in our lives. Um, and we, we, we do a practice on that. That's usually quite an engaged um, uh, group, the, that week seven. Then week eight, we're looking at how we bring it into into your life, um, you know, now and, and long-term, and we kind of review and see where people are at, and, you know, there can be some kind of quite amazing transformations take place. To use a kind of a big word, but quite a simple word as well, you know, that might just mean I've got more clarity around what I need to do. It sounds like there's a lot that you cover, John, and cover a lot of angles. And I'm guilty to admit that the most mindfulness I've done has been because of the Headspace app. Um, for a while ago, uh, having trouble sleeping, I think I used the app. And um, ever since then, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a brilliant tool to have. And I guess my understanding of it is it's like a muscle that gets stronger the more you do it. So you have to practice it. And what I've noticed over the years when I do do it, it's I'm way better at it. I can do it, and it's not something that you ever master but you can definitely it gets you get better at it yeah it is it is kind of like um yeah if you if you take a big dose it has a big effect you know um but also all those little small doses day to day also have an effect too you know um so all those small moments um you know i think that's what people struggle with the most is the practice and, and bringing the practice into their lives and you do need support with that um you know and and um I think that's why joining something like, uh, you know, the, your eight week course is so helpful because being accountable to someone, you know, whether it's just you're joining a group makes things so much easier, especially at first, because, you know, that's when you're looking to set that habit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think kind of there's a lot of power in the group as well, because everybody learns from each other, you know, so and there's kind of quite a commonality as well. when you realize I'm not the only one who's experiencing these things, you know. I'm, I'm wondering if, if you have any of your own personal favorite mindfulness exercises Maybe if you've got one favorite mindful exercise that you could share with us that we might try out ourselves. Yeah, I like the body scan. I think um, connecting to the body is um, really powerful and the body is a you know, pretty amazing thing, you know. Um, it, it is, you know, naturally quite resilient and, you know, we kind of we kind of live up in the head so much of the time, just dropping a, a little bit of attention into the body. So I, I like just bringing my attention into the neck, shoulders, all the way down to the feet and upwards again and John Kabat-Zinn has some nice practices on YouTube um, if people check out my Instagram page John Cummins Mindfulness you'll see some um, you'll see a body scan practice there 
um, that you can do. Um, but that'd be kind of my favorite, but that's the thing. People, everyone has a different thing that they enjoy more, you know, that's the thing. And that's why there's a, you know, there's, there's an introduction to different types of practices during the program as well. But I've always lent more towards the body scan because it's um, just had a, had a good effect for me, you know. You know, with there being so many mindfulness options available, would you have any specific mindfulness resources that you would recommend? You know, whether it's a podcast channel, an app, a book, you know, something that you think this does a great job of explaining mindfulness or helping people practice mindfulness. I like, I, I think kind of, and this is the thing, this is why I was so surprised with mindfulness when it worked for me because, you know, we're trained to be kind of skeptical and critical of things, you know, kind of in, in our training, you know, don't take everything as first hand, you know, question it. So I would say first question things, you know, question something and then see what your own experience is. But I do like um, 10% happier. It's an app um, that a guy called Dan, Dan Harris, a news anchor in the States, um, has developed. Um, he got a panic attack himself and when he was reading the news and, and live on TV and he um, he kind of he found mindfulness to be quite useful for him. So there's a lot of good um, podcast episodes there that are free, they're interesting. Um, and on the app as well, there's there's some good there's some good stuff there some from, from some good teachers and there's programs you can follow as well, you know. Um, so I, I like his, um, I, li I like that app. That's something I like. And probably, I, but the reason I probably like it is that because he wrote a book called Mindfulness for Fidgety Skeptics, you know? Um, and I like that there is a kind of a, that approach of kind of, you know, figure, you know, kind of try it out and see what you think yourself and, you know, if it works great and if not, you know, throw it out, you know, you don't have to take it all. Um, you know, so kind of, and there's, you know, so there's always the caveat, there's no guru out there who's going to tell you how to how to do things or live your life it's really important that you kind of you know you kind of keep your own agency and things and um and, and figure things out for yourself um so that would be one app that I, I i enjoy using myself um and oxford mindfulness center has good resources um there's there's uh, finding peace in a frantic world is a nice book to read um it just makes a lot of sense and it's a it's a it's pretty much a kind of a short six week course um, that you can kind of do yourself, you know, you can follow um, and it has short practices um, and that's well written. It's nicely written, you know, and it makes sense. Um, a kind of a favorite book of mine is uh, Mindfulness in Plain English. Again, it's very simply written, you know, and and you'll often find actually when you're reading a book on mindfulness, such as the one on Finding Greece in a Frantic World, or mindfulness in plain English, the books are written with a lot of clarity, you know, and very simply actually. Um, and you can kind of you pick that up from the page, you know, and even just the process of reading that can kind of, you know, help to slow things down for you, you know. Um, so it might not it might not always be a practice, it could just be a good book it can really engage you and give you that sense of what it's about. Well, thanks you for all those recommendations, John. Unfortunately, it is all we have time for today, um, but I've really enjoyed that talk. Thank you, James. It was it was great to connect, and uh, yeah, I always enjoy chatting about mindfulness. And um, you know, it's great when somebody asks you to talk about the thing you kind of feel most passionate about.